I'm Steve. And I'm Sarah. And we have been in a series uh, of conversations highlighting different figures from different branches of our Christian family tree. We could think of it as older sisters and brothers of the faith. Um, We've talked about some people whose names are famous because there are whole denominational traditions attached to them. We've talked about people whose stories and names are lesser known, but... uh, equally weighty or important in what they had to say. And uh, today, Sarah, tell us where we're going to go on this journey today. Yeah, so today we are looking at a couple of women mystics. Um, So these are women who have experienced some sort of vision, and like religious vision, and has used it to form uh, the rest of their lives as well as the lives of others around them. So... For example, the first woman is Julian of Norwich, Norwich, who was an anchorite, which means that she lived in this little bricked-off room in a church. Um, Julian, Julian is not her correct name, I believe, Steve. That is the name of the church. Yeah, she took the name until her actual given name was lost to history, but she took the name, or is remembered now as Julian of Norwich, because the church in which she was an anchoress was in Norwich, England. It was St. Julian's Church. So you can know where to go to find her. Yeah. Where her room was. Yeah, so she just lived in this room. She never left it again until she died. Um, and... Um, so we know very little about her life, but we do know that about at age 30 or so, she got sick, um, which seems to be a common theme with mystics is that they get Mm -hmm. sick and then like either during or after the illness, they receive their vision. For Julian, it was during, um, she wrote two texts, um, the short text, which she calls a vision, and then a long text, which she calls a revelation. So the vision uh, she wrote shortly after her illness, and it was basically, this is what I saw, this is what I experienced. And then the revelation she wrote, like, 50 years later, possibly, um, she had experienced, like, two other short visions, like, in between those two writings. So the revelation includes some of the um, visions that she experienced afterwards, as well as just more of, I've had 50 years to, like, be thinking about this and mulling it over, and this is now what I think. And Mm -hmm. so that's what the revelation is, is all of these visions I've learned from i've been thinking about here's my longer spiel Mm -hmm. about it what it means Uh yeah so that's julian of norwich he very much had this one essentially this one big vision and then like two small ones later um but yeah she wrote the vision and revelation and was yeah she seemed to have written them herself too which i think is pretty significant like she didn't dictate it to a scribe (laughs) Because she lives in, what, like the 1100s, something like that? Yeah, she was born in about 1342. Okay, 1300s, okay. Yeah, she, yeah, so she was pretty well educated for somebody, uh, a woman of that time period. Like, sure, she knew sure, how to sure. write and um, read. But this is an era where we are talking about handwriting, hand copying things, too. Yeah. Um, and if memory serves, she's not the only person in church history who's remembered as an anchorite or an anchoress who would physically live. And if you're hearing the word anchor in there, yep, that's like these were people who understood their role to be, I'm sort of physically stuck here, almost like an anchor on the, you know, in the, the bottom of the sea floor. But they were like this 
they, they saw themselves uh, as like a, a, a point of continuity in their communities and their towns. Like, I'm going to live here. I will live physically. At the Sometimes they would even have external windows that you could talk through outside of the church. So, like, there would be like a little slit in the door that people could bring them food in. But they would also sometimes have external windows that someone who wanted to talk or listen or need to get advice from would like literally like it, like from the outside it looked like you were talking to the wall but you were talking to the anchoress inside mm-hmm. and here pray for me about this or talk to me about and like so while only a handful of her writings are preserved like her story is one that surely she and others who did this practice would be like I'm going to be the person who's available like permanently on call when someone has a need someone needs to talk about something or pray about something they will come to me and I can be there for them um, that was a part of what their sense of ministry so it was kind of like being a nun but it wasn't like a um, doing the daily office and going with the other nuns and we're all going to pray morning prayer together like I'm stuck in my cell literally in my cell often sometimes literally bricked in and sealed up so they couldn't get out with just the things that they needed handed to them under the door or slits or windows or things like that. Yeah. Yeah, there's usually two openings, I believe. The one to the outside, which was big enough for, like, food and also buckets of mm-hmm. yep. whatever, waste. Whatever you might need a bucket for, just whatever. Yeah, uh, to, to be passed mm-hmm. through. Um, and then there was usually a smaller opening, uh, like think the size of like a mail slit, like to yeah. get mail in, uh, that would open into the actual sanctuary so yeah. that they could listen and participate in uh, daily services. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, and a lot of her writings seem to have that like very, like you could tell that she listened to a lot of church services <laughs> at this time. Like she had been an anchorite for over 50 years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like the kind of cadence of her writing was very similar to what you would hear in like a lot of like Psalms yeah. mm-hmm. peppered in there because praying the Psalms was like a yeah. fairly mm-hmm. typical thing. So she like knew the Psalms backwards and forwards from this. Almost like the way that all, uh, so many of Emily Dickinson's poems have the same meter of classic hymns that you can sing them to any hymn tune or the Yellow Rose of Texas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or Gilligan's Island. But, um, <laughs> um, so like, the, this this whole phenomenon to me is interesting that like while nobody I don't think any any uh, anchorite or anchoress in Christian history would have said all Christians need to do this the only way to be a true disciple is to brick yourself inside a la like Edgar Allan Poe's story you know but like they had this sense of my calling is I will be this permanent fixed presence there um, and I, I I don't think at least the the most honest people who did this they didn't see themselves as like I'm a super Christian, I'm better than you because I'm refusing to go anywhere beside the church building and all the rest of you are all going to hell. But like, have the, no, this is my calling. And it wasn't like, uh, I'm better than you or super Christians do this, but more, whatever God's called you to do, you, you may not be an anchorite, but I am and this is what I'm called to do. And have that sense of this was their way of being more fully present for their community rather than retreating or withdrawing from the world. I know the mm-hmm. Desert Fathers used to say, if you're going out to the desert, it wasn't. It shouldn't be to run away from the world, but if it's your way of being more fully present with the world so that you can be removed from the distractions of stuff so you can be more fully present for the needs of others. And that that's how to interpret what sounds to us like a weird lifestyle choice of bricking yourself into a church building. And you have a quote from Julian of Norwich. Yeah, Can man, I love... This is one of my favorite Julian of Norwich quotes. Uh, she is famous for, and all will be made well, and all be made well, and all manner of things will be made well. And I think it comes from the revelation of the divine love. Um, I guess the thing I like about that, as simple and memorable as it is... Um, I, I don't think in any way it's Pollyanna-ish optimism of just everything will all work out, but she's got like this cosmic apocalyptic sense that in the end God wins, in the end... 
love triumphs, and that because of that, that gives her the ability to face day in and day out, even when daily life is surely drudgery and monotonous. I mean, if you live inside a small bricked-in room with only a bucket slot and a mail slot, that it's, it's sometimes got to be you know hard to, why do I keep bothering to keep going on with life? But she's got this sense of, in part because of those visions that she's had, if there is something so much more real than... Um, the slings and arrows of this daily life that, that okay, it's worth continuing on. But I, I, that, that line of hers gets quoted an awful lot, all will be made well, and all will be made well, and all manner of things will be made well. Um, it seems to me like, often and often the mystics have this, is this sense of just the cosmic bigness of everything. That some, sometimes other, other writers, other voices from the scriptures and from Christian tradition end up with sort of uh, well there's winners and losers and you want to be on the winning side you don't want to but like this bigness of like in the end God's love is so vast and huge it includes every atom in creation it's so vast it includes all of us um, and that there is nothing that won't be redeemed there's nothing that God writes off and shrugs and goes like eh, I guess I'm willing to lose this part but that vision of like God doesn't let go of any of it. That that's a, a piece that you often find in the the mystics, and I think that that's at least hinted at in that famous quote of hers. Um, are there other uh, women who are mystics who you also want to uh, introduce us to today, Sarah? Of course! Yay! <laughs> uh, so the next woman is Teresa of Avila, who lived about two hundred years after Julian of Norwich. Um, she was taught at home with her two brothers. We know a little bit more about her life, like her name. Um, well, kind of her name. She, she was, uh, she took vows to become a nun and she was a nun for the rest of her life. She was not a reformer where she left. Um, but she adopted the name Teresa of Jesus. So, um, we're unclear as if Teresa was her birth name or if it was just a name she adopted. So she also got sick. Um, similarly to Julian of Norwich, and she, um, fell ill and was paralyzed for two years. Like, it took her a long time to get back onto her feet, if you will. Um, but, yes, after this, after her illness is when she started getting her religious visions, which were not the good kind. They were the kind where there were, like, little demons and the devil tormenting her. And she took this to mean that she needed to have a more rigorous spiritual practice. And so she left her convent to found a new one called, um, it was a Carmelite um, convent. It was in the same town. It was in her hometown of Avila. And uh, it was based on stricter rules. And they were called the barefoot, barefoot or descaled Carmelites. Um, and they were called barefoot because they often wore sandals without socks. Hmm. So, you know, if you are still wearing socks with your sandals, just remember, Teresa Avila says no. <laughs> <laughs> and she said it for spiritual reasons, not for fashion reasons. Presumably. Presum- <laughs> got, it. Got, it, got, it, got it. I haven't actually read her very lengthy rule book, so... I do not know why why they did not wear socks with their sandals. Fair enough. Um, one of the things that I think is interesting that is a common thread between Julian to some degree, but with other mystics as well, is that often you have this pairing of a real rigorous ascetic lifestyle, mm-hmm. especially those who were monastic, those who were nuns or monks, um, with these like wildly... Uh, spiritual experiences that define, uh, you know, 
understanding that defy you know um, explanation and that somehow those often go side by side and that might be like counterintuitive because like you might think really really strict we don't we don't indulge in these fanciful dreams or visions and and yet somehow these often go hand in hand um the other thing i think is is interesting is um uh that that i don't know that, that um her her sense of the experience of the divine that wasn't all cheery and happy. I mean, like, you know, it, Julian, like you said, uh, has revelations of divine love, and other people get to talk to Jesus all the time, and yet that she had these very, very dark, troubling visions, mm-hmm. and yet found that there was something real and genuine that, that guided her faith life in that. And I wonder, you know, we, we kind of push back against this idea a lot mm-hmm. in today's culture, and I think even back then, I mean, people pushed back against the mystics, and um, but it seems, you know, that not only we push back against, but we've lost this idea that visions and dreams can still happen and still speak to the church. Um, and I'm not sure how we can, um, may, maybe just studying these women and other mystics more and, and realizing, okay, this, this does speak to the church and seeing how we can try to bring this back. Because I'll tell you, personally, mysticism is kind of like, I get it. I've studied it. I have a degree in spiritual formation, but it's like yeah. But yeah, a little much for me. <laughs> if you haven't really experienced any of the things that the, that yeah. the mystics experienced, like it, 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 there's no grounds of like common experience right. for me. Like I, because I get that too. Um, but where we can have draw some similar ground to like understand Teresa of Avila is one of her writings, Meditations on the Song of Songs, which was the only work in which she attempts something like biblical exegesis um, was she, she wrote it and she like was starting to publish it and the Spanish Inquisition ordered the work to be destroyed. And you know, she's a good nun, mm-hmm. like, right? Like she has mm-hmm. found, founded a convent. She's so mm-hmm. good. And, uh, she, you know, she was, she was a little bit taken aback and was asked why and so they very helpfully said that reading scripture linked her to the Protestant movement. Mm. And she goes, oh dear. <laughs> um, and also, writing a book defied Paul's women should be silent thing. Interesting. And so she goes, well, don't that beat all. <laughs> and she, she complied. Wow. And she gathered up as many of, her, of this book that she could and she burned it. Hmm. Like, she burned it. Like, she was like, okay, fine, I will do this because I was asked to by the church authorities and I will obey. But also, and this is the quote I have of hers. I hold it as certain that we do not offend him, him being God, when we find delight and consolation in his words and works. A king would be happy and pleased if he saw a little shepherd he loved looking spellbound at the royal brocade and wondering what it was and how it was made. Just so, we women need no, not entirely refrain from enjoyment of the Lord's riches. I am just like this little shepherd boy. Hmm. Nice. So even though she, com- com- she, yeah. she followed the rules, she followed her orders of destroying this work, she also wanted it to be known that she thought it was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. One of the things I, I think you guys both hit on a, a second ago, that idea of how do you relate to somebody whose experiences are so different if you haven't had that. And mm-hmm. in a way, I think this is a, a point of at least uh, 
connection for for what emerged in the branches of the Protestant Reformation that we belong to. And I know at least Luther has a real, real strong aversion to um, those who have these uh, you know extraneous spiritual experiences. I think his concern is. If you're not someone who's had one of those, that you not end up with the feeling of, oh, I must not, God must not love me yeah. because, or, I, oh, yeah. I'm not really a good Christian because I didn't have that. And Luther wants to ground the sense of, no, your, your standing between you and God has nothing to do with whether you had a warm, fuzzy spiritual experience or a weird dream or something mm-hmm. like that. It's all in what Christ has done. And therefore, you don't have to worry about whether you've done, your spiritual experience matches somebody else's. And I get that. At the same time, that can end up sounding like, the only valid spiritual experiences are the ones that are predictable and codified and if you fit this cookie cutter um, and anybody who's something doesn't fit that box, we don't know what to do with you. And uh, that's often how it's turned out. Anybody who's had like, well, I had this dream. Uh, uh, we, we, I mean, what happens to Joseph and his brothers? He starts having dreams and we don't want to listen to him. Um, and th- there's this difficult tension. On the one hand, how do we keep ourselves open to a God who refuses to stay in whatever box we put God in. And at the same time, the moment I say, well, I had this really crazy dream. It must mean something. So throw out everything else. That, like It's possible that you throw out the baby with the bathwater there saying, I had, a, I had an interesting dream. You should listen to it. It carries as much weight as the Gospel of John. Well, how do we decide those kind of things? And I, I, So I think that's part of why at least movements like Luther's or Calvin's tend to be suspicious of the mystical. Um, and yet so often the people who have had those mystical experiences express it as not like I'm better than you, but like, God invites us all into a close friendship kind of like relationship. One of my favorite lines of Teresa of Alvila is something like, prayer is nothing than being on terms of friendship with God. And if you have grown up in a tradition that, no, prayer is you recite the words out of the hymnal, gosh darn it, um, you will lose that sense of prayer is about being on one-on-one friend terms with God. And the mystics allow us the possibility that God can come that close, sometimes intimately close and fiercely close, even terribly scary close um but that's a, a good thing ultimately um for them and it, somehow we gotta hold on to that that tension i guess and like for wesleyans i i don't know that wesley writes anything um pro or against mysticism mm-hmm. i think he's so far removed um both in time and just geographically mm-hmm. from from that um that it's just not something that sure. kind of crosses his mind mm-hmm. in in 1700 england but to know that eventually, out of our branch of uh, Christian history, Pentecostalism right. comes out there somewhere, yeah. and they have, you know, they would be ones that definitely would um, seek out the mystics, and sure. maybe not in the same sense that the Roman Catholic Church did when it first sure. happened with Teresa and, and Julian Norwich and others. But um, and, and so I'm just wondering, as someone who considers herself um, partially Pentecostal, and and with my belief in how the Holy Spirit continues to work and move mm-hmm, today, mm-hmm. how do I draw this back in and right. keep it within my Wesleyan understanding of sure. of Christianity? And just my general, you know, because I, while I, I'm truly a Wesleyan, I, I branch off in a lot of different directions. Sure, sure. And, like, that, it's a difficult thing. Like, it's outside of my experience when somebody says, oh, I had a, a word from the Lord and Jesus told me to tell you, mm-hmm. you know, buy the red shirt or something. Like, And there are folks who are like, they're not only sure that God spoke to them, but God spoke to them on specific things like, you need yeah. to tell your friend mm-hmm. Bill that he needs to buy the red shirt. Um, and because I've never had one of those fashion advice from God conversations, uh, I, I don't know what to make of that. And on the other hand, something tells me I have to leave room to allow that God's big enough and God, God reserves the right to. 
but it, it's difficult to hold on, on the one hand a rational sort of science is a good thing, I don't want to throw that out, and at the same time allow God reserves the right to do all kinds of things that are bigger and wider. So, Steve, you've been talking about not, you know, what to do when that person comes to you and says, you need to buy the red shirt. And say, I have not been the person that's received that message, uh-huh. but I've gotten it from others. And I would tell you, it's a very interesting experience. Yeah. Um, but my advice to anyone who ever gets somebody that says that to them, test the waters. Right. You know, typically they're people I know really well. I know that they're good, faithful Christians that have a great relationship with God. And clearly that's the same that's true with all these mystics. Um, so, um, just test the waters and see, um, if that's something that's truly from God or that's just somebody like, yeah, I think you just look in the red shirt. <laughs> right, right. Well, and like, that's, I guess that's the thing. There's a cynic in me that wants to say like, I, I know my own impulses and I know me just offering my opinion is one thing, but if there's a way I can make it sound like this is really what God wants, I, I get that in, even mm-hmm. if, even if with the best of intentions, I don't think I'm trying to be manipulative, but it's just, well, I'm pretty sure this must be what God wants. Like, if, if God really wants someone else to get the red shirt, I sort of feel like God could tell that person to get the red shirt, mm-hmm. or whatever the issue is. And yet, I also have to make room for, maybe God knows the only way to get through to me is to send somebody else, because I'm not going to listen to a dream or a vision or a something like that. I, I don't know. But, like, somehow to hold together, God's got to be bigger than any box I want to put God in. And at the same time, just because someone said, I had a dream about this, you should rearrange your life plan or throw out the Gospel of John, because... Uh, I, I said so. I, I'm, I'm nervous about that, you know? And I will say most of the people that I, I trust that have given me those kind of a word of knowledge or something will give me that same reasoning. Mm-hmm. This is what I think I'm hearing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But test it out yourself. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. if I have somebody that just comes up to me like randomly or even somebody I know but just randomly out of nowhere, you know, we haven't had a conversation, they just walk up to me like, God is telling me to tell you this. I'm like, mm, yeah, I'm going to be like you. I'm going to be a little bit more skeptical yeah, about those kind yeah, of things. Yeah. That's fascinating because my next person, that's what she did. Okay, tell oh, us. Cool. Tell us the story. So the next person is Catherine of Siena, who, um, fascinating. She she was the 24th of 25 children. Like, So she comes from a very big family. Um, and... She was also very opinionated. And so when she was seven, she decided to dedicate her virginity to God. Everybody in her family just kind of laughed because that no one else in her family had gone the religious route. Mm-hmm. And she's like, nope, I'm not going to do this. Um, and when she was 15, she decided to join the Third Order of St. Dominic. And her family, again, was like, uh, no, you're not. By the way, your sister just died in childbirth. You're going to marry her widow. And she's like, um, you mean the guy that was really mean to my sister and my sister who would, like, stop eating and fast in order to change her husband's mind about certain matters? You want me to marry him? And her family's like, yep, that's who we want you to marry. And she goes, I'm not doing that. I'm going to start fasting just like my sister. Hmm. And... Also, I'm going to cut off my really long, pretty hair, so I'm not attractive tra- attractive to this um, really mean guy. And so eventually her family, her parents, relented and let her um, take vows. And she lived out those vows in her parents' home. Hmm. So, so that was cool that they eventually supported her and, like, kept her fed, kind of. And, um... She continued doing her work. But when she was a little bit older, so she had been doing this for a while of um, caring for the poor in her city and praying and fasting and so on and so forth, she 
experienced some sort of mystical communion with Jesus. And for the rest of her life, Jesus spoke to her. And this was apparently well known enough that she and was trusted enough in the fact that Jesus spoke to her and through her that she was a frequent guest to a pope. And partially, because at this time there was a big dispute as to who should be pope, there were like multiple popes, and it was like there was an Italian pope and a French pope, and they were like arguing as to who was actually pope. Dueling popes, sure. Yeah, and she was frequently like writing about this and giving support to a pope, and also telling the popes to neither of you are even acting like a pope. You're just Mm. feuding. Like, how is this helpful to anybody? Like, is this really what Jesus wants? By the way, he told me no. (laughs) (laughs) So stop it. There's the ace up his sleeve. (laughs) Right. So she, she actually visited at least one of these popes and, like, talked to him face to face. Like, had an actual audience with the guy. As well as frequent correspondence between them. So, yeah, she actually had Jesus talking in her ear, and people didn't think she was just loony. Hmm. Like, they actually listened to her and was all like, okay, well, we can't decide on this matter. Somebody get Catherine of Siena on the phone. Let's see what Jesus has to say. Do you guys want to hear about how she died? I really do. Yes. (laughs) So, uh, Catherine of Siena died very young. She was only 33 years old. But she got into the bad habit of fasting as, I believe, the way to properly hear Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she, um, a good portion of the works that remain of hers is prayers that she wrote in the last 18 months of her life. Um, she wrote, I think, lots of them, but 26 of them still have survived. But she died because she stopped eating. She just was fasting more and more and having the fasting be more and more strict. And even her confessor um, at the end was ordering her to eat properly and she was insisting that, no, I don't, I don't need it. All I need is communion. All I need is the Eucharist. And the Eucharist will supply, give me all of the nutrition mm-hmm. that I need. That's all I need is Eucharist. Um, so by the start of 1380, she basically had stopped eating completely. And by February, she lost the use of her legs. And then by April, she suffered a stroke, which paralyzed her from the waist down. And then eight days after her stroke, she died. So she died from stop from fasting because fasting gave her somehow a better connection yeah. to Jesus. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting to me how like the, the regular concern that respectable religious types have about mystics is that they seem to walk the line into crazy. And and like I get, like with good reason cuz like this yeah. seems like one of those anyone with good common sense would it order you please no eat some food please Catherine. Um, and yet at the same time like the 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 folks who are remembered as as voices on that mystic path, like are okay with realizing this is going to seem crazy to the rest of the world. Whether it's here, what I saw seemed crazy, or the fact that I say Jesus talked to me sounds crazy, mm-hmm. and they seem to be okay with that. It's all right if the rest of the world thinks I'm insane. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, on, on the again, like if if you're going to build a, an institutional church on that, I'm not sure that you want to say. And our plan for everybody is we're all going to you know, like that. That quickly becomes like suicide cult, mm-hmm. you know. Like so, like how. How do we, as people who live in and, and who have roles in institutional organized churches and congregations that have to continue beyond one generation, 
on the one hand, not silence and stifle the voices that are beyond our experience or do or say something mystical or say, I had a word from Jesus about the shirt you should buy or I'm fasting for this, you know, waiting for an answer. And on the other hand, um, like keep some kind of grounding. Like how, how do we not dismiss as, well, they're just crazy, but on the other hand, also retain the voice of common sense for the confessor to say, like, you should probably eat something. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't know how to, how to do that in a lived way in, in the long run. Um, but I, I kind of would love it if we were the kind of churches, if we were the kind of leaders that made room for and listened for those voices of mystics and poets. But also to know part of the cost of being a mystic or a poet is people are going to give you the weird eye from time to time. I, I, I struggle with um, with mystics with trying to figure out, are you actually yeah. hearing the voice of God or are you just hearing your own thoughts right Mm -hmm. and there's part of me that thinks oh i shouldn't be trying to judge that and then another part of me that says but you really shouldn't be listening to people who are claiming to be hearing the voice of god but are not Mm -hmm. um joan of arc being a good example of that like was she hearing saints or was she crazy? Right. Um, Catherine of siena a lot of the things that she was writing about and saying kind of matches up with like it's good sound like it's orthodox it's orthodox right uh Um, but at the same time I I, I'm troubled with the idea that she seems to have heard God better when she was starving right that that's such that's such an unhealthy practice so that kind of in my brain Mm -hmm. raises a red flag right then I don't think you're actually hearing God I think that you are hearing voices because you're starving. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that that mm-hmm. there seems to be this connection. So maybe it's not God. Maybe it's um. Maybe you should eat an apple. Yeah, you know? yeah, I bet yeah. You feel yeah. better, right? Yeah. You know. And it's so difficult because, like, I there's I, if, if if someone came to me saying, Pastor, I'm hearing voices from God, and that happens every time I stop eating for a week. My immediate concern is we need to get food in you, and we need to get your blood sugar test and make sure that you're not, you know, having a, you know uh, an insulin shock or you know, like you know, and there, and I don't think that's a wrong impulse because I think the gifts of knowledge and science and medicine are good things, and not to throw those out just because someone had a religious feeling about it. And at the same time. I'm sure that's what everybody said to all the prophets in the Old Testament who had crazy ideas like I'm gonna you know uh, wear a you know dirty pair of clothes for a year as a sign against of God's judgment. I'm gonna wear an oxen yoke. I mean, like they did these things that we would call crazy, and so often that's exactly what respectable, religious, and powerful people do. Is mm-hmm. this person doesn't fit my box, I will silence them, and I, I want to live in that tension, you know, like. A, to tell people, please eat and <laughs> don't starve yourself to communicate with God. God can find other ways to get through to you. And yet at the same time, not to just automatically silence the voices that are outside, that sound like they're so out of left field. Well, something, Sarah, you said about um, Catherine's, what, what she said, what she wrote, is it always lined up with orthodoxy. And so that's, for me, a way to test mm-hmm. these voices. You know, if it doesn't line up with scripture, it doesn't line up with orthodoxy, then, Yeah. Is something going on. But also, like, when it comes to fasting, and, and I've practiced fasting on and off over the years. Um, I don't, I'm not very good at it because I like food. Um, <laughs> I always food is say, delicious. When I, when I preach on it, I always tell my people, yeah, I, we should all be doing this to some extent, but I like food. Um, it's always meant to be a set amount of time. You know, throughout scripture, anytime it's done, it's either, you know, like, if it's a Daniel fast and it's a certain type of food that you're refraining from, or when Jesus is out in the desert, you know, he does it for 40 days and... I don't recommend anybody try a 40-day fast unless, you, like, you know that God is calling you to do this. Um, 
I was always taught, you know, three days is like where you max it out because anything beyond that just be, can be very easily become unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I'm, I'm with you. I can probably, if I read more about um, Catherine DeSiena and, and more of her stuff, I'd be like, okay, how much of this is because you're starving yourself? How much of this is from God? Right. Um, and how quickly our spirituality can get infected with this, like, God will love me more if I show how devoted yes. I am. And, like, and yes. it, it, that is a really, really tempting, mm-hmm. uh, and because it it dresses itself in piety. If I love Jesus so much, I want to show Jesus how much I love him, I will go without. I will go. And, mm-hmm. again, there's, there's, there's a strand of self-denial that is certainly a part of Christian spirituality, but um, it... You cross a line when you get into like, oh, when I do this more, Jesus will love me more, and mm-hmm. yet how quickly that that becomes tempting, and that becomes a, a reason to want. Okay, I didn't get an answer to the prayer after fasting for only one week. I must do it more. That will get Jesus' mm-hmm. attention. Again, there's plenty of biblical warrant for like, please don't go down that road. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but um, and and maybe what what sort of a God do you imagine you have? If God won't listen if you've been fasting for a week, but God will after two weeks. I mean, mm-hmm. like now, now you're at Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and he's like, "You guys are cutting yourselves. Maybe your God can't hear you. Try more." You know, like and that yeah. that's that's a good way to tell if you've got a, the real God or an idol. Um, and yet, to make room for someone whose experience is is other seems seems somehow important because like mm-hmm. Jesus regularly points out like. What people, the way people treated the regular prophets was to dismiss them and say they were crazy and then kill them. Um, and the way they responded to the false prophets were, "You're towing the party line. We like you. You're back. You know, you're back in the king, so we like you. Or you only say things that we already like. Therefore, we will listen to you." Um, and I'm, I'm nervous because I know that temptation in me to just be like, I only want to listen to the voices that I already agree with, um, <laughs> and, and that sometimes. God, I guess, I, I want to say, like, God reserves the right to, to pull a wild card from time to time. Mm-hmm. And even if I don't understand or I don't get where they're coming from, to allow, could I at least allow the humility to listen to what the mm-hmm. extraneous voice is, you know? Um, and and I, I know this is making a little bit of a, a leap. Um, one of my favorite, favorite movies of all time is Jimmy Stewart's Harvey, the one where it's the guy who sees a six-foot-and-tall invisible rabbit. I don't know if you know this movie. It's a classic. It's one of those, please go see this movie at some point, especially if you live in Indiana County, the home of Jimmy Stewart, like we do. Um, but so the, the premise is about this guy who sees a six-foot-tall rabbit that nobody else can see. And most of the movie is his friends and family convinced he's crazy and wanting to lock him up because nobody sees mm-hmm. a six-foot-tall invisible rabbit. And why would you talk to this rabbit? And how could you know it's real? Most of the movie is him getting in and out of an asylum to, uh, to make this problem go away. And there's a scene toward the end where the director of this um, Chumley's Rest Sanatorium uh, actually meets... Harvey, the invisible rabbit himself, and talks with him. And he comes back and he gives this great speech and he goes, Fly specks. I've been straining at fly specks while miracles have been leaning against lampposts at 18th and Fairfax. I mean, like, as if say, like, it turns out he was real all along and I was so focused on the world I could see and diagnose and objectify and put in a box that I missed. There were things, the world was bigger and stranger and wilder and weirder and yet also more miraculous than I was prepared to acknowledge. And I, I think even though that, that movie isn't meant to be a parable of mysticism or Christian spirituality. I think there's something important about um, the moment I think I've got how the whole system works and tidy and in a box, God keeps reserving the right to say, and here's a prophet that you didn't want to listen to saying, do justice and love kindness and, and walk humbly with your God, or um, a, a vision like a John of Patmos giving us the book of Revelation, or a Catherine of Siena or a Teresa of Avila. And they say things, sometimes they sound outlandish, and sometimes they say things that just cut right to the heart. Like my favorite Catherine of Siena line is, 
all the way to heaven is heaven because Jesus said, I am the way. And I love that notion of hers of like, it's not just Christianity isn't just wait until you die, that's when it gets good. But the, the whole journey is about being in the presence of God. And if, if, if heaven is ultimately about being in God's presence, then yeah, this life is about that too. I can't ignore that voice. So even if it comes with baggage I'm not comfortable with, because I don't like the idea that Jesus has personal conversations with Catherine and how come not me, Jesus? Or why are my conversations different with you? I have to at least make room that God reserves the right to do that. I think it all comes down to faith. I mean, that's that's our, you know, that's everything. Everything we have, we take on faith, mm-hmm. and we just have to remind ourselves that you know, just to put ourselves in that position of just trusting God and, and trusting that He's going to show up when and how He He's going to show up, and yeah, you know, sometimes we're going to like it, and sometimes we're not. <laughs> right. And that, that allowing that what faith looks like to me is going to look different than what it looks like for yeah. you. And that's that's okay thing, too. It, sometimes we get real difficult with that. Like, if your experience doesn't match mine, I'm sorry, you, you must not be... One of, one of us has got to be a heretic. And yeah. Maybe not. Um, so, there's obviously a lot more mystics we could spend time with. On. Maybe that's a conversation for another day. Um, but I appreciate... Uh, all of you and bringing to the table your experience and conversations about um, these particular women mystics of the medieval era. Um, and join us for other conversations next time here on the microphone here at Crazy Faith Talk. <laughs> See you guys. Bye.